So we are currently considering why we use the King James Bible on Sunday nights. And so far, we've considered Satan's strategy in corrupting God's Word, how God preserves His Word through faithful copies, a comparison between Antioch and Alexandria, where the two manuscripts take their names, infiltration of false doctrine in the first century church, and then last week we considered the early history of textual criticism. We talked about the period from roughly 100 to 400 A.D. and the rise of men to positions of influence, men such as Marcion, Justin Martyr, Clement, Origen, Jerome, and Eusebius. But all these men were textual critics, as we would use the term today. Remember, they had been heavily influenced by Greek culture, and they were guilty of mixing paganism in with their Christianity, their brand of Christianity. They were actually forming their own brand, if you will. Um, Gnosticism was becoming prevalent, and it led to corrupted manuscripts. On the translation front, things went silent through the Dark Ages, as did a lot of things. You still had those who held to a pure text, These were those who would end up being martyred for their faith throughout the the Dark Ages. Our Baptist forefathers were among that group. And really, we could pause right here and do a series on our Baptist history. But I'm not going to spare you that for now. I'd like to have that as its own series, not within this. And so as the Dark Ages were coming to a close, the door began to open for the Renaissance, which started around 1300. And I closed last week by uh, emphasizing how all that had taken place, it laid the groundwork for the Dark Ages where the Catholic Church ruled with an iron fist and, and things just went from bad to worse doctrinally. And it led to the martyr of, of millions of believers. There's a lot that I've left out of this study, and I'm going to leave a lot out even tonight because I don't want to drag this on. We could turn this into months of just talking about this era of history, and I'm trying not to do that to you. I trust that if you are one that is on the fence, you'll study some of these people more in depth, your own, verify that what I'm telling you is true, and that you'll, you'll come to a conclusion on your own. So please take the time to research these more deeply if you need to. But during the Dark Ages, a lot of things were, um, like I said, it was getting, it was getting worse. Catholic Church had taken over. Before that, you already had baptismal regeneration beginning to make its way in. Um, Within the Catholic Church, uh, Mary worship became a thing in 451. And and you have to go back and read all the councils, and you can see where they made all of this. They decided this is what was truth. Uh, Image worship came in in 787. No salvation outside of the church in 1050, that's the Catholic Church, the sale of indulgences to get people out of purgatory, which doesn't exist, in 1100, transubstantiation in 1215, confessional in 1215, the Inquisition in 1215, and then the four, this is kind of the, the big thing here in relation to our subject, they said no one could read the Bible in 1229. Did you hear what I said? Catholic Church said, do not read your Bible. So with the Renaissance came the translation debate. And eventually a revised spirit of textual criticism 
I'm going to try to move fast. The Renaissance brought a new desire to learn, and it heavily impacted Christianity as the Renaissance eventually led to the Reformation. English is now the predominant language at this time, and this new birth of learning came with it a desire for an English version of the Bible. Remember that the Catholic Church had banned the common man from having a copy. They didn't want them to read it. They wanted to keep it in Latin to keep everybody else in the dark because English is now predominant. So if we can stay with the Latin Vulgate, nobody else can understand it, and we can be the purveyors of truth and tell you what's right and what's wrong, and you'll just have to trust us that what we're telling you is truth. Well, apparently it worked. Amen. They're still around. They're still going strong. They're still lying. And so this desire for an English Bible was growing, and God began raising up men uh, to keep working on an English Bible in the face of persecution. I mean serious persecution. These were men who would end up giving their life for the cause of giving us an English translation of the Bible. This would be men like Wycliffe. This certainly is not all-inclusive, by the way, but like I said, it would take forever to go through all of this. But Wycliffe, he lived 1329 to 1384. He was an Englishman. Uh, He protested against the Catholic Church, though my understanding is he never officially left the Catholic Church, but he was one that was working on an English translation of the Bible. But unfortunately, he was using Jerome's corrupt Latin Vulgate as his foundation, not the original uh, Masoretic or received text. So from Wycliffe's work, though, we get a lot of classic phrases that we find in our King James Bible. And just for example, straight is the gate, you know, broad is the way. These are things that, uh, straight is the way, narrows the gate. These are things that Wycliffe uh, had, and these became popular phrases. They were used in in the King James. But they were verified against the pure text. So persecution by the Catholic Church was so severe that when Wycliffe, when Wycliffe's followers were found with a copy of the translation that he had uh, developed. They were burned at the stake with that tied around their neck. Catholic Church. The holy Catholic Church. Sorry, I'm in a mood tonight. I don't know why. All right. I got to focus because it's going to get bad if I don't. And, And so Wycliffe died in 1384, but in 1415... A council decided, a Catholic council decided that man's a heretic. So what they decided to do is let's dig up his bones. And they, they dug him up in 1428 and they burned his bones and they cast the ashes of his bones into the river Swift. That's hatred. <laughs> That's pretty hardcore. Then came a man named Erasmus onto the scene. And for, this is 1466 to 1536. He was called the matchless scholar of the Renaissance. He took on the work of compiling a Greek text from what was called the common faith. And he wanted to know which group of believers stood behind the different texts that were out there. So this is a debate that isn't new. And, and he wanted to know, okay, what's, what's the deal with all this? He wanted to know if their walk matched what they said they believed. Which, by the way, the world's watching. He wanted the manuscripts the true followers were using. 
And he also was a Catholic in protest. By the way, we call those Protestants. Amen. Baptists are not Protestant. And so he also admired the Anabaptist. That's who we come from. Those who are against infant baptism. And he rejected the Catholics, or those who were Anabaptists rejected the Catholics' teachings. So these manuscripts were first known as the common faith. But they became known as the Textus Receptus, which means the received text. That's what we hold to be the preserved Word of God. Next was William Tyndale, 1494 to 1536. He was the first to translate into English going back to the Textus Receptus because now there's been this kind of study, which one is the true believers? Oh, let's go with the Textus Receptus. So he goes back and translates from that. Um, and that's where our King James Bible, New Testament, is translated from. And from this point forward, all translation efforts were going to be from the received text or the Antiochian set of text. Tyndale was quoted as saying, quote, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the Scriptures than thou dost. End quote. I would say that's in protest. Well, not surprisingly, Tyndale was arrested as a heretic and condemned to death. He was strangled and burned. His dying words were a prayer. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. His prayers were answered. And the next year, the king was opened to new translations. Tyndall never got to finish a complete translation. It was finished after his death, and 85% of his translation work made it into the King James, or the authorized version. After the, the Tyndall Bible, several versions were published in rapid succession. Miles Coverdale, in 1535, was the first to translate a complete Bible in English. After Coverdale was Matthew's Bible, published in 1537 by John Rogers, who was using the alias of Thomas Matthew. Amen. <laughs> Cracks me up that they had aliases. Uh, he was a friend of Tyndall. He also was burned at the stake for denying the Christian character of the Roman Catholic Church. He also denied transubstantiation. Before he was burned, they offered him a pardon if he would retract his protest, but obviously he refused. The Great Bible was published in 1539, which Miles Coverdale also had a hand in. And then next was the Geneva Bible of 1560. It is said the superiority of this translation over the Great Bible was apparent, but it was unaccepted for official use in England because if you know anything about the Geneva Bible, it contained footnotes. And the notes in there were, were considered controversial. And whenever you start having man's notes in your Bible, you get man's opinion, and you might see a text altered on the interpretation of it based upon man, not the Holy Ghost. <laughs> That's why I'm so thankful Pastor taught us, Pastor Williams, you know, taught the preacher boys, I guess the whole church, I don't remember. Get a Bible with no notes. And just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And that's what I have to this day. Amen. After the Geneva Bible, and, and by the way, if, you, if you'll study the Geneva, I think I'll mention this once we're doing a comparison 
on the Bible versions. If you look at the Geneva Bible footnotes, there are some that are just absolutely erroneous. And that's why it, it was rejected. It, it's just false. The text was pretty good, but the notes is what the problem was. After the Geneva Bible came the Bishop's Bible of 1568. And this translation never really gained a whole lot of traction. And uh, at least not for the people. I mean, it was called the Bishop's Bible. And, um, but it did pave the way for the next translation, and that is the authorized King James Bible of 1611. And that came out when, and this is important, it came out when the English language was at its peak. Uh, right now, our English language is getting dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber. When the King James was published, the, <laughs> the average vocabulary was 3,600 words. Now it's 900. Uh, dude. <laughs> and, yeah, hey, brah. He started it. <laughs> In fact, it, if you ever study like the Puritan writers, you know, if, you, if, if you've even just read them, you'll get in a, you'll read like a paragraph and go, I got I to gotta chew on this. I mean, they packed in some stuff in just one paragraph. And a lot of those words, I got to go, what does that mean? And then I look it up and I got to look up the definition of the definition. Amen, Pastor DeGarmo? I mean, it's like, that didn't help me any. I'm just saying they, they, were, they were a lot smarter vocabulary-wise than, than we are today. And, and that's not I'm just saying it was at its peak, and that's a good thing. Um, so just a side note here. Isn't it interesting that these early English translators were the ones persecuted for doing a translation? And yet, none of those who were doing translations before or after out of a corrupt text were persecuted. Isn't that weird? It's almost like Satan was behind it or something. Now, we don't have time to get into it all. It's a study in of itself, but the translators were a very special group of men. And I've said before that <laughs> these, these four or five people that do a modern translation cannot hold a candle to these, these men that were the translators back in the 16 and 1500s you got to understand, in those days, people were learning different languages from, like, knee-high. And so by the time they came of age, they were fluent in, like, three to five languages. Of course, they were taught Greek and Latin um, and Hebrew because that's what they had. They had the Latin Vulgate, and then they had the manuscripts that were in Hebrew and Greek. And, of course, they knew English. I mean, these, these were very educated men. I, I highly encourage you to study the translation committee of the King James Bible sometime. It's fascinating. Um, the thing with the King James translators was it wasn't just one man. There have been those who have translated the Bible by themselves. One is a man by the name of John Darby. Um, his stuff is trash, but whatever. Um, <laughs> all right, I got to focus, man. I'm... So the committee wasn't just one man, but it was actually several dozen men who were highly educated. They were humble. They were God-fearing men. And they followed a meticulous translation process. And, and there are some reasons I would use the King James whether, whether I didn't understand the, the issue or not. And one of them is this. Those men were so honest that they, were, they would put a word in italics if it wasn't in the original text. And frankly, that's enough for me over all the other versions. Give me a Bible where the translator were honest enough to say this word was not in the original text. Now, what's important to our study is they rejected this translation committee. They rejected the Alexandrian text as erroneous. 
And they viewed the Texas Receptus as the preserved Word of God. And all English translations from Tyndall to the King James took place in about an 86-year span. So this was happening pretty quick. And, And then for 270 years, nothing rivaled the King James. So what happened? What happened to cause the King James Bible to be questioned by the time we get to the 1800s? And what led to the desire for a different English translation? In short, it was this. It was the revised spirit of textual criticism. Remember, things kind of went dormant there through the Dark Ages. But coming out of this, now textual criticism's on the rise again. Just as God raised up men to bring about a preserved English translation of God's Word, so Satan raised up men in time who would push back against God's preserved Word. And and this trail would lay the foundation to the corrupted critical text and the modern Bible versions being accepted over the King James. Now, after the Reformation, men in their intellectual optimism They tried to come to knowledge apart from the Bible. Some tried rationalism. Others tried through their senses. But all of this took time to gain ground. There became this philosophical explosion that came on the scene. And the epicenter was Germany. There was a man named, um, and and (laughs) Sabina might have to help me with some of these pronunciations, amen. Uh, There was a man named Johann Semler. Semler? S-E-M-L-E-R, 1725 to 1791. He's called the father of German rationalism. He questioned all foundational biblical truth, such as the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, and, of course, the Bible itself. Then came a German professor in Konigsberg, Prussia, by the name of Immanuel Kant, 1724 to 1804, and he held to the doctrine of transcendental idealism. Uh, He believed in the area of knowledge man could know what was true, but only in the natural realm. So therefore, he believed in the area of God, the soul, these things you can't see, where man comes from, where man is going, you have no knowledge. Or, instead of what we studied last week, I think, instead of Gnosticism, now you had agnostic. And now you had no, you can't know. It's unseen. And so now you're kind of replacing Gnosticism with agnosticism. He formalized at the university level that man could not know who God was. Kant believed the Bible was only a man-made book. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And that man, not God, becomes the focus of all meaning. To Kant, the final word was not the Bible and God, but it was mankind. In other words, if man can think it through, and if one can experience it, then it must be true. And if one can't think it through, then it must not be true. And now man, here's here's the point, man became the center of the universe. Then came Johann Gottfried Eichhorn, 1752-1827, And he's called the founder of modern Old Testament criticism. He questioned Moses' role in in pinning the Pentateuch. 
and he questioned much of the New Testament's authenticity and authorship. This is textual criticism, um, just being critical of the text. Then came a man named Friedrich Schleiermacher, 1768-1834, and he's been called the father of modern liberal theology. And he was seeing that Christianity was starting to lose credibility among the thinkers. Right? You want God just because you're stupid. You need God because you're not smart enough. Isn't that what we hear? Y'all are just a bunch of weak-minded people that you'll listen to this buffoon up here, <laughs> i.e. me. And, and so the, this whole, all of this is, is coming out after uh, the Dark Ages and after the Reformation, and, and all of this is, is coming together, all these different schools of thought. And so um, Christianity was not a matter of what is true and doctrinal. It's not a matter of faith. Why? Because we know God by our emotional experiences. Amen. People say, I don't feel saved. I don't feel like you can do this or that. I don't feel like that's right. Boy, it's amazing how all this stuff's still around. So it doesn't matter if the Bible's true. How do you feel? And so an emotional experience would be the final test. He said sin was a lack of God consciousness and that Jesus was just a man who reached ultimate God consciousness. He didn't care if there was criticism of the Bible because you cannot confine God to what it says in the Bible. But he concluded that man is the ultimate determiner of truth. We decide what's true. Then there was Ferdinand Christian Bauer, 1792 to 1860, who said Paul didn't even write his epistles. Now, this may seem trivial to you, but if you study this out, you'll understand, you listen to the so-called scholars, and this is the kind of stuff you hear today. No, we have reason to believe that Daniel was not written when it was. We have reason to believe that it wasn't really Matthew that wrote it. That was just somebody used that name to have credibility. This kind of stuff that's out there. Well, this is, this is all satanic. And it, it was all cropping up back then. And then came Lud, Ludwig uh, Feuerbach, 1804 to 1872. And he said there really was no God. I hope you can see the progression that's taking place here. He says there, there really is no God. That God was inward in our human nature. And, and the reason we think God has traits is because we invented who God is through our own nature. In short, he believed and taught that man is God. Which, guess what? Now we're up to nothing more than glorified atheism. By this point, the Bible was being viewed as just a book to be subject to historical criticism. And then out of Germany came a man named David Strauss, 1808 to 1874. He wrote a book called The Life of Jesus in 1835. And he argued Jesus was just a historical figure. And that miracles in the life of Jesus were all mythical inventions. And we, were, we are to reject those. And we're to reject the virgin birth and the resurrection and all of these fundamental doctrines. And with all these thoughts emerging and being accepted, it set the stage for Charles Darwin's book called On the Origin of Species. 
to be released in 1859, and it was accepted, and it was built upon. Why? The Bible had already been, the doubt had already been cast on the Bible. And so the stage was set, and people were ripe to receive this work of evolution. Next was Julius Wellhausen, 1844 to 1918. And he said, the Bible chronicles the developing progression of man's concept of God. He said, in the Old Testament, God is nothing more than a tribal deity. He's imaginary. In the prophets, uh, he was the God of universal righteousness. In Jesus, you had the God of compassion. Well, that sounds familiar to what we talked about last week. There were those early on that were saying, no, the Old Testament God was a meanie. The Jesus that God, the, the God that Jesus talked about was benevolent. So they're not the same. Well, it's just all a revision of Satan's tactics. And so man's concept of God was continually evolving. And then came uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Or I think, is this the one people say Nietzsche? I don't know how. Nietzsche. 1844 to 1900. Now, he's the one that summed it all up by famously saying, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Nietzsche Nietzsche used this phrase to express his idea that enlightenment had eliminated the possibility of the existence of God. And he went a step further and said, because God ultimately is man, we don't need to hold to these archaic morals that we find in the Bible. He had the idea to stop glorying in the quality of enduring suffering, but let's glory in the ability to inflict suffering. Did you catch that? I know I kind of worded that bad. Now keep in mind, we're, we're up here around 1900 now. And so he had the idea, no, let's, let's glory in, in our ability to inflict suffering. In other words, let's glory in barbarism. Why? Because man makes the rules. This theology, and and you're going to have to study this for yourself. This theology, what it did was it paved the way for the rise of the Fuhrer in Adolf Hitler. And after the death of President Paul von Hindenburg, it, it would ultimately be decided that the final rule and authority in Germany's Third Reich was the will of the Fuhrer. In other words, the Fuhrer's word is above all written law. And, and this is all a domino that started out back here. Started questioning a little bit here, a little bit here, a little more, a little more. Next thing you know, God's dead. We killed him. Man is God. And this all came about as a result of corrupted theology. Anti-God principles. And so I don't want you to think all of this is just semantics or all of this is not important. No, listen, man... Man certainly reacts to theology. And so it's been said, all these higher critics that I've, I've mentioned tonight, and there's, there's a lot more, that all these higher critics, what they did was they mounted the greatest assault on Christianity that has ever occurred in the history of the faith. And this is because many of these men were officially associated with churches. A lot of them were Lutheran uh, in Germany. And so their doctrines were being preached from the pulpit. And so it was, it was being accepted uh, easier. And because they were associated with, with churches, their doctrines were now being taught in seminaries. And it can't be a coincidence. Listen now. Listen, it cannot be a coincidence 
that right when all of this was, was peaking, that all of a sudden you had an explosion of false religions. It, it, in my mind, this, it's all tied together. All of a sudden, you had the Unitarians show up in the 1700s, the late 1700s. You, you, who are the Unitarians? Uh, they just believe, they don't believe Jesus is God. Unitarian, one God. They don't believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. And so then you had Mormonism in the 1830s. You had Seventh-day Adventists show up in, the 18, in 1863. Jehovah's Witnesses came about in 1870. Christian Science in 1879. And all of this came as there was a move away from the King James Bible. You say, that's nonsense. I don't care what you think. But there was textual criticism going on. And that textual criticism led to the idea, wait a minute, maybe Jesus isn't God. I'm going to show you all this on the slides. Maybe Jesus isn't God in the flesh. Maybe we don't need to look at salvation the way we do. And so all these corrupt teachings came on the scene. Now, what does all this have to do with modern Bible versions? Because all of this textual criticism, the true believers were losing all the credibility. And they were disagreeing with these popular and influential men. And so the spirit of textual criticism... What was happening was it was making its way to America in the 1800s, hence all those lists of religions I just gave you. Because these men were going over to Germany to get educated, and they were coming back to America. And they were spreading what they were being taught. And so this theology was everywhere. And so with all this textual criticism and doubting um, being cast upon God's Word, it opened the door for the Alexandrian text to be received as God's Word and so now it's going to reappear, and they're going to say it's more authoritative than the Antiochian text, which they were at one time saying, no, that's the preserved Word of God. Keep in mind, when the King James Bible was published in 1611, it was received as truth. It was unrivaled for 270 years until the publication of the revised version of the New Testament in 1881. And later it would be the Revised Bible in 1885 once they did the whole Bible. This Revised Bible was based upon Alexandrian text. And what sparked this revision was the discovery of the Sinaiticus. Remember we talked about that last week. A man named Constantine Tischendorf discovered the Sinaiticus. Uh, there's two dates that I've read for his discovery. One is 1844. Uh, the other is 1859, but it was found in a Catholic monastery on the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, exactly where God said, don't unite with. Tischendorf wrote in his book, quote, uh, sorry, the name of his book was, When Were Our Gospels Written? And then he wrote this, he found 43 sheets of parchment in a trash basket that they used to start fires. And yet that's the preserved Word of God that we were so lucky to find. The other main manuscript, I, I said last time, it was discovered at the Vatican in 1481. Now, both of these are from Catholic locations, and I think that's enough to make you just pause for a second. With textual criticism now being popularized and with the discovery of the Sinaiticus, it set the stage for two men. And, and again, we can do a whole series on these men. Uh, Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort. Good night, he was so cool, he had to have four names. They were products of the philosophical movement of Germany in the 1700s. 
And if you look at the character of these two men, uh, you'll... Good night. They held to all kind of false doctrine. And for now, I'll just encourage you to do your own study on these men if you're interested. I'm, I'm pulling up short of saying they were practically the devil. They, they had some crazy beliefs. So how did these men pull off the greatest feat of textual criticism by convincing all the masses that the text from Alexandria is the one to use? How did they convince that these were better texts? How were they successful in unseating the King James Bible in English? Well, Westcott and Hort, they approached what is called the Northern and Southern Convocation of the Church of England. It's known as the Convocation of Canterbury. They sought permission to get together a committee to bring the King James Bible more up to date. After all, these words are hard to understand. And that's what they said they were going to do. In short, they lied about their intent. That's how Satan operates. He's very subtle. And he's the father of lies. And so they convinced the Church of England that they were only going to revise the language of the King James, hence the name of their revision, the Revised Bible. But what most don't understand is that Westcott and Hort had already been working together on their own critical text from the Alexandrian text. And they had been doing that for a couple decades after they had discovered the Sinaiticus. They never published it, so it was never known. They brought the critical text from the corrupt manuscripts into the translation committee. Even though the convocation had instructed the revision committee not to deal with the underlying Greek text of the authorized version. In other words, don't mess with the Texas Receptus. We hold that to be true. That was their instructions. But the revision committee lied. And they did, bring, they did start to bring in stuff outside of the Texas Receptus. They introduced these corrupted texts in their so-called revision. And perhaps they lied because they were of their father, the devil. The revision committee was made up of some other men of questionable doctrinal beliefs. For example, they asked Dr. Vance Smith, a Unitarian, to take part. Like I said, they, they reject uh, the Trinity. They reject the deity of Christ. They embrace unity of all religious opinion. Dr. Smith also believed that history and reason is the guide to all conduct, not God's word. And would you want a Bible from men like these? I sure wouldn't. And I marvel that so many think this is a dead issue. Now what's interesting today is you don't hear much about Westcott and Hort anymore like you used to. And the reason why is because in large part they've been exposed for what they were. And so what now, what you're likely to read is this or hear is that modern Bible translations are taken from the Nestle and Allen Greek text. Which by the way is on his 28th revision. The first edition was published in 1898 after Eberhard Nestle combined the readings and, uh, of the editions of Tischendorf, Westcott, and Hort and a man named Richard Francis Weymouth. Uh, therefore, there's very little difference between the Nestle Allen text and the Westcott and Hort critical text. The bottom line is they both are from the corrupt, uh, corrupt Alexandrian Greek text. And Westcott and Hort and the editors all heavily criticized the Antiochian text. 
And in fact, if you'll read the introduction to the Nesley Allen um, 26th edition, it states this, quote, when Eberhard Nesley produced the first edition of the Novum Testamentum, uh, Testamentum uh, Grassi, or it means this, the New Testament in Greek, in 1898, neither he nor the sponsoring uh, Württemberg Bible Society could have imagined the full extent of what had been started. Listen, although the Texas Receptus could still claim a wide range of defenders, the scholarship of the 19th century had conclusively demonstrated it to be the poorest form of the New Testament text. That's what they felt about the Texas Receptus. Now, you got to understand, what did they mean when they, when they said the scholarship of the 19th century? They believed that it was that which was taught in the 19th century that proved the Texas Receptus to be the poorest form of the New Testament text. If you understand that, you understand the key to their claim and what I'm trying to tell you over the last two weeks. The scholarship of, of the 19th century, of the 1800s, was all of that stuff I just gave you that was coming out of Germany. In other words, these men who developed these texts from which our modern Bibles are translated from, they were not true Bible believers. They did not hold to absolute authority and inerrancy of the Bible. Why, why then should I think these men scholars? Like many are doing today. Now, for roughly 1,800 years, the text which was accepted by Bible believers was the received text. Hence the name. It was received. It's been known by different names. I said all this in a previous lesson. And we ought to be asking at this point, now get this, if, if you kind of tune me out. We, we ought to be asking at this point, if the Sinaiticus was God's preserved text, are we honestly to believe that we've never had God's preserved Word until its discovery? Are we to believe that God somehow lost track of His pure Word? Would God really keep His holy Word in hiding from His people for all of those centuries? Did God not love His people enough to give them His preserved Word? Would God force us to use a flawed text until the right text was discovered? Would God's Word have to be discovered by some lost man steeped in textual criticism for mankind to finally have the text that God intended English-speaking people to have all along? Listen, it makes no sense. Well, I meant we would get our, Bible, our English Bible from that is what I meant. Lastly, one of the main arguments you'll hear and see as footnotes in modern Bibles is that an older manuscript is more reliable and more accurate. If you've ever studied it, you've seen it. If you've ever had a modern Bible, you'll see those footnotes. But is that a good argument to say if you find an older manuscript, then it must be accurate? It makes no sense. You can stand a man up here that's 120, and he may be steeped in so much false doctrine, that don't make him true. You have a child get up here and say the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Anyway. The fact that the Alexandrian texts can be dated as being older in existence than the majority texts obviously does not prove that they are better. Age never proves truth. Here's some reasons uh, to consider. 
The Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus texts were written on vellum, which was expensive at the time, calfskin. It was very high quality. Vellum was the highest quality you could get. Most scrolls were not made of vellum, but they were written on papyrus paper or maybe sheep or goat skins. All of those are inferior to vellum. It, it, could, it could easily be that because vellum was expensive, most of the Antiochian text were not written on vellum, but were most likely written on papyrus paper for most, some on sheep or goatskins. Therefore, text written on an inferior surface would not have stayed preserved as long as vellum, as those two corrupted texts, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. Uh, number two, it could be the corrupted texts were identified as corrupt, so they weren't used with any regularity, and their Bibles didn't wear out. Some of us are guilty of that. Somebody's going to discover our Bible in 500 years ago. Man, that's older. That's nice. That must be truth. <laughs> but the point is, if you didn't use it, it wouldn't wear out nearly as fast. And since one was discovered on the shelf, it didn't ever wear out. Uh, third thing to consider is the climate in which the texts were found the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, where they were discovered. The Vaticanus was in a climate-controlled Vatican library. The Sinaiticus was discovered in what is known as a hyper-arid climate. Yeah, I went there because I'm a weather guy. And, and that's great for document preservation. Meanwhile, the Antiochian texts came from a much different climate, which did not favor document preservation, especially those of inferior materials. And the fourth thing, consider early church persecution. Many of the early manuscripts which would have easily predated the Alexandrian text were destroyed when true Christians came under severe persecution. We covered this recently in Daniel, how Antiochus Epiphanes, um, he destroyed all the texts he could find there at the temple. And so there was a man named Diocletian, for example, a Roman emperor, and he had all the churches burned. And that's where most of the Word of God was kept because the common man couldn't go to Walmart and buy one. Amen. They were expensive. They took a long time to make. You had a sect of people called scribes just to do this. And so you, when they burned the churches, they burned a lot of the Bibles. And then Diocletian, he was wicked enough to say, if you find one, we're, we're going we're gonna to burn it. We're going to kill you. And so there was a lot of severe persecution that was going on to true believers. Therefore, the argument that older manuscripts must be more accurate, it really holds no water. And it shouldn't be used as much as it is. Now, I'm going to wrap this up real quick. I hope you've been able to see the connection between those who have denied the absolute authority of God's Word with the modern Bible version movement away from the King James, away from the received text, and a move to the corrupted text and it really is a good study if you have time to dig into it for yourself. I believe it's worthy of your attention if you're going to fully grasp why Liberty Baptist Tabernacle continues to use the King James Bible without apology. Which Bible would you choose? One which has stood the test of time, brought revival to England and America, came from Antioch, the early hub of Christianity? Or would you choose a Bible which was born out of Alexandria, Egypt, from textual criticism, false teachers of false doctrine.
God's word tells us that his word is incorruptible. Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. God's placed an immense amount of emphasis on his word. Wouldn't you like to know that you have the pure word of God? Well, I hope you'll stay with me if you're on the fence on this issue because next time we'll start comparing different Bible versions and I believe you'll understand why it's such a big deal. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed.